Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 371, Dr. Stephen Nemish on Divine Christology in the New Testament. In this episode, Dr. Nemish and I discuss the longest chapter in his new book, Trinity and Incarnation, a Post-Catholic Theology. This is chapter 6, entitled, Jesus and the Spirit. In it, Dr. Nemish critiques how small-c Catholic tradition has argued that Christ is divine. And he also gives alternative interpretations of some of the favorite traditional Deity of Christ proof texts in the New Testament. It's a powerful chapter that, in conjunction with the rest of the book, can turn around how you view the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he a God-man, or is he God's man? Dr. Nemish, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you for having me again. Dr. Nemish, I often run into the assumption that the deity of Christ, or Christ having a divine nature, is just an obvious implication or assumption in the New Testament very often, people don't even argue for it, or they'll just lazily gesture at a few traditional proof texts, or sometimes it's pointed out that in a few places, arguably, Jesus is called God, or theos in Greek. But you and I have, for similar reasons, come to think that the deity of Christ is not at all obvious in the New Testament. And in fact, reading the New Testament that way seems to face a number of obvious uphill battles. And we know that historically, the full deity of Jesus where this isn't modalism, was new in the 4th century. So, Dr. Nemish, what do you say when people urge that the deity of Christ in the New Testament is just so obvious that it's perverse to question whether or not these books teach it? Well, I would say that to some persons at various points in history, it was obvious that the earth was flat, or that the sun went around the earth, or that it's appropriate for women not to have the right to vote or it's appropriate for (laughs) black people to be slaves. Things are obvious to people because they're so used to looking at things in a certain way and they've never seriously questioned their own ideas or their own assumptions. Things become less obvious when you subject your point of view to rigorous critique and you begin to call into question the things that you've taken for granted until now especially when you run into people who see things differently than you and you hear their arguments and you try to view the world through their lenses, at that point, it no longer is obvious. And I will say the same thing for myself. Maybe at one point in my life, I would have thought that the deity of Christ is an obvious teaching of the New Testament until I Mm -hmm. ran across people who didn't feel that way and who read the text differently and who provided alternative explanations of things. And then suddenly it wasn't so obvious anymore. So what I would say is that obvious is relative, right? Something can be obvious to you, but that doesn't mean that you're right about it. Just as the flatness of the earth or the fact that the sun goes around the earth or the lesser status of women or of black people was obvious for a lot of people throughout history, but that's not obvious to us anymore. uh, And we think that actually they were wrong. Yeah. So people like us have undergone a sort of paradigm shift and we look at the same evidence, but it kind of comes together in a different way when it's viewed in this different light. I think one thing that makes it so persuasive to us is that the New Testament as a whole just kind of makes more sense to us 
It's like it illuminates things that didn't make sense before. Right. So it's not just a fashionable view or like we're really impressed with our own cleverness or, you know, we came up with something really neat. It's that it tends to throw light on the whole and seems to very naturally fit with a whole bunch of things in these books. Would you say that's your experience too? Yeah, certainly. Um, a lot of times people who, you know, are very upset at me for having come to this conclusion about Christology, for denying the deity of Christ, they will accuse me of arrogance and they'll say that, oh, I think I know better than the whole Christian tradition and so on. Mm -hmm. There are a few things to say to that. The first thing is that I don't know better than the whole Christian tradition because the whole Christian tradition doesn't agree on anything. What they mean by the whole Christian tradition is their Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. But I don't accept that Christianity reduces to Catholicism. And once you expand the borders a little bit, then it's not obvious that the whole Christian tradition agrees about anything, uh, let alone about this particular matter of the deity of Christ. The second thing to note is that for a long time, people who denied the deity of Christ or called it into question were persecuted. And you were really taking your life into your own hands if you decided to stand up and to suggest that maybe the New Testament's teaching is something else. The most famous case was Michael Servetus, who was burned at the stake in Geneva, John Calvin overlooking during the Reformation. And even as far as I remember, the last man to be burned at the stake in England was himself a Unitarian who denied the deity of Christ. So like I was saying, for a long time in history, you were risking your life by thinking any other thing. So it's not clear that even if there was a majority tradition that lasted for a really long time, uh, it doesn't follow that that majority's historic prominence owes to the fact that it's obviously right, rather than to other factors which explain how it is that people believe this for so long, you know, less, uh, less favorable factors. Yeah. And you and I have educated ourselves about this minority report that runs through Christian history. You have it in the earlier years with the dynamic monarchians, so-called, and then you have it in early modern times with the Socinians. And by the way, I was pleased that in the chapter that we're discussing today in your book, Trinity and Incarnation, you ended up a couple of times quoting the very interesting Rakovian Catechism, which yeah. is a product of decades of Unitarian Christian, quote, Socinian scholarship. Uh, it's a really excellent lost source, has a lot of interesting things in it. Sometimes the minority report turns out to be right. Have you ever heard of Protestantism? You know, <laughs> I mean, if you're the type of Protestant that doesn't operate under bishops, like Baptists, for instance, I mean, nobody thought that in the Middle Ages. How could that be? How could God allow it? Well, I don't know, but look, on your views, sometimes a minority view turns out to be correct, even if, so to speak, the whole world is against it for a while. Right. We can't stick with lazy shortcuts like, oh, everybody knows that's wrong, or, you know, how can you think you're smarter than all these great people? Like, look, these are all shortcuts for actually digging into the meat of it, digging into the actual New Testament evidence. Agreed people that take this minority view, we're just trying to make sense of the same thing you're trying to make sense of, which is what's taught about Jesus in the New Testament. So Dr. Nemish, what we're going to talk about today could be described under the term spirit Christology. People with a theological education like you know what that is. I'm not sure the general public so much knows what spirit Christology is. So how would you describe this tradition in modern theological scholarship? Spirit Christology is a form of Christological understanding that understands what is divine about Jesus with reference to the Holy Spirit. So the point of emphasis for making sense of Jesus's divinity, 
so to speak, or the divine special things about Jesus is to make a reference to the Holy Spirit's operation in him. And there are Trinitarian and Catholic forms of spirit Christology, and there are also non-Trinitarian and what we might call non-Catholic or post-Catholic forms of uh, spirit Christology. And what I'm arguing for in my book is a kind of a post-Catholic spirit Christology. I'm arguing for a spirit Christological reading of the New Testament that does not consider Jesus to be one person in two natures. So rather than thinking of him as somehow like originally a divine person who becomes human in the incarnation by assuming human nature, for me rather Jesus is originally a human person who begins to be divine in some way, uh, in some limited capacity, because of the operation of God's spirit upon him. So he's not so much a God-man as he is God's man, if you want to put it in those terms. He's mm -hmm. somebody that God uses and specially empowers and authorizes. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit here isn't going to be the Nicene third fully divine person? No. In my mind, the Holy Spirit is just God, but it's God when he does something and is sort of like experienced interiorly or on, you know, inwardly in things. So it's God sort of doing things to the created order from the point of view of their the interior effect of his action. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we say that you know the Holy Spirit inspired a thought in us, that means that God inspired a thought in us. But we talk about the Holy Spirit because thought's inspiration is something that we're aware of inside ourselves, right? Or the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts. That's God pouring love into our hearts, but we feel it on the inside. It's not something that we see happening outside of us. And so we call it the Holy Spirit. Okay. So is it fair to say that on your understanding, the New Testament doctrine of the Holy Spirit really isn't different than the Old Testament doctrine? That's how I see things. Absolutely. I do think that there are moments in the New Testament where it seems as if the Spirit is spoken of personally, mm -hmm. but that's not impossible on my scheme either, because I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is not a person. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person from the Father. Mm. The Holy Spirit is the same person as the Father. It's just that we call it the Holy Spirit uh, when we look at the Father's action from a certain point of view. Yeah, spirit talk can be complicated in the New Testament. I mean, there are a few passages where some interpreters think that the Holy Spirit is supposed to be the risen and exalted Jesus. Right. So it'd be a person, but not always the same person. But anyway, not a person in addition to God and Jesus. Okay, well, that's a whole episode, the Holy Spirit. Let's take that understandable interpretation of what God's Spirit is supposed to be and, and keep that in the background. So what you discuss in this book, and I, I love your discussion of this, it's what you call the basic argument for two natures. And so you're analyzing a style of argument that's kind of ubiquitous in small c Catholic tradition, and then you're going to give an interesting critique of it. So what is that basic argument? Basically, the form of the argument is... It has two premises and a conclusion. The first premise is this. Normally, only God does X, or a being with a divine nature can do X, but Jesus does X, and so therefore Jesus is God or a being with a divine nature. Mm -hmm. And there are various examples that are typically brought forth in defense of this, for example, forgiving sins or being worshipped. Normally, only God can forgive sins, but Jesus forgives sins, therefore he's God. This is a line of reasoning that you can find in Irenaeus, in Novation, in Tertullian. And Novation actually has a whole list of these sorts of arguments in his book on the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So this is a common argument. And you also see contemporary forms of this argument being offered by biblical scholars who are a part of this early high Christology group. 
Mm-hmm. They'll point out, for example, that various things that in the Old Testament are said about God are then said about Jesus in the New Testament. For example, that he calms the storms with a word or texts that originally had to uh, had to do with uh, Yahweh are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And so because things are said about Jesus, which normally would only be said about God, therefore the conclusion is that he's God. Yeah, in some sense, either God himself or divine person or just fully divine, yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of people will hear this and say, what's wrong with that? I mean, didn't you just refer to a whole bunch of convincing arguments? <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is that we have to become clearer about the ways in which things are said about God and the ways in which things are said about Jesus. It may be true that normally only God can forgive on his own, you know, by his own authority and power. But it doesn't follow that if Jesus is set to forgive, therefore he's also set to forgive on his own and by his own power. Mm-hmm. Because God could simply authorize him or empower him to forgive. And that's in fact what the New Testament says. Mm-hmm. You know, in Matthew yep. chapter 9, when he heals the paralytic man, he cites the passage from Daniel. He says, the son of man has authority to forgive sins on earth. And then all the people who were gathered around there were very impressed by him. And Matthew says that they marveled that God had given such authority to human beings. Right. So their reasoning about this is clear. What has happened is that God has authorized this human being, Jesus, to forgive sins. And there's nothing contradictory about that. God could do that if he wanted. Sounds like something an all-powerful and all-knowing being would have no problem doing. Right. So the problem with this basic argument is that it fails to distinguish between two ways in which we can talk about what God can do and we can talk about what creatures do. For example, there are things that God can do of his own power and other beings cannot do those things of their own power, but they could do them with God's power and authority. So forgiving sins is one of them. Working miracles is another. God can heal a sick person directly by his own power but he could also empower another person to do the healing if he wanted. And Jesus, for example, as a mere human being, would not be able to heal sick people just by his own power, but he could do it with God's empowerment. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Jesus is said to do things that God does or that names are applied to him that normally would only be applied to God or that he forgives sins, all these things can be true of Jesus. And normally they're only true of God, but it doesn't follow that Jesus is God because it could be that normally they're only true of God in an original and sort of underived way, just in virtue of his own power and authority. But they are only true of Jesus because God has given him the power and the authority to do those things. So in Jesus's case, these predications are made of him derivatively, whereas in God's case, they're made of him originally or essentially, we might say. Mm -hmm. So let me walk through it just really step by step. So premise one would be normally only God can forgive sins, which that would be true, right? We think that's a true premise. And premise two would be that Jesus can forgive sins. Well, that's what the New Testament says, so we think that's true. And the conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is God. What you're saying is that this argument is invalid, that the conclusion that Jesus is God doesn't follow from the truth of those two premises. Right. Or it could be true that normally only God can forgive sins, and true that Jesus forgives sins, and yet it could be false that Jesus is God because Jesus can be someone authorized by God to forgive sins, which is exactly what you see in Matthew 9. And by the way, I think Matthew there, he adds a few bits to the story that he finds in Mark, and it's precisely so you don't make the mistake of some readers of Mark of agreeing with Jesus's enemies that only God can forgive sins. 
Right. They say that, and some people latch onto that. See, they understood. You know, Jesus is claiming to be God. Matthew's like, no, no, no. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's not be stupid. Don't agree with those guys. Yeah. Let me add a little bit of crowd reaction here, so you understand what the actual point is. Okay, right. but then. Once you make this distinction, then it looks like any such argument is going to be invalid for a similar reason. You could change it to doing miracles or giving life, or normally only God can judge humanity, but Jesus can judge humanity, therefore Jesus is God. No, it doesn't follow. Jesus can be the man authorized by God to judge the rest of us. Right. Yeah. The, the whole point is that conditions are not normal in Jesus's case. They're special conditions. Yeah. Uh, he's newly empowered and authorized to do something that as a mere human being, he would not otherwise be able to do. Yeah. And I, I thought this analysis, uh, Dr. Nemish, was really interesting. Um, it's a little different than some analyses that I've given, like in my debate book with Chris Date and some other places, I think. A lot of times trying to be charitable to the Trinitarian, I will get rid of the word normally in the first premise and just say, only God could forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. And of course, that would be valid. Like then, if really only God could do this and Jesus could do it, then therefore Jesus is God because only God can do it. So you get a valid argument there, but then you get that first premise, which just seems like it's obviously false according to the New Testament. It's not true that only God can forgive sins because he can authorize someone else to forgive sins. Not only can he... According to this, he has. Right. So <laughs> you're trying to be charitable to them by giving them a true first premise, which makes sense, but then you get an invalid argument. I'm trying to be charitable to them by making a valid argument so there's not a mistake in the reasoning. Right. But then on my interpretation, uh, you get a premise in every case that just has no justification it's not something taught in scripture. It's not self-evident. It's not something that can be established by any argument. Right. We could make an either-or argument. You know, do you mean normally God forgives sins, or do you mean just necessarily only God can forgive sins? Either way, it's not good. You're not going to get a good argument like this. Yeah, all this suggests to me that this is just a hopeless pro project. <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful analysis. I mean, there's so many different arguments. I mean, another one, you know, only God could be referred to as using the word theos, you know, God in Greek. Only God could be called Lord and so on. And nope. Those are so obviously false. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're really saying only God, then that's false because, well, just read the New Testament. And if you're saying normally God is called those things, well, that's true, but then... Jesus is not exactly the normal case, like you said. Right. So, yeah, I, I really uh, thought this analysis was good. So, there's a lot of sloppy arguing here. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what is partitive exegesis?
I think when a lot of conservative Christian readers come to the New Testament nowadays, Dr. Nemish, they're really not appreciating how difficult all the speculations are about Trinity and Incarnation. And I think this is where your book is especially valuable. You spend the first four chapters of the book just laying out in some detail, like, look, guys, there's problems everywhere you turn with this Jesus being a God-man and with God being one usia and three hypostases. It's trouble. It's theoretically problematic. If you come to the New Testament thinking that, you're not going to be just so confidently assuming whatever the mainstream tradition says. Right. So, I mean, the New Testament distinguishes Jesus from the Father, and the Catholic tradition comes along and says, oh, yeah, but that's a, that's a distinction of persons, but that's not a distinction of essence. It's like, well, <laughs> but the Father is the one true God, and Jesus is a man. Where's this God-man guy? So... I think your book, the first part of it, can change people's perspective in helping them to see that these are not obvious ideas, nor are they New Testament ideas. There's a big bunch of baggage that people come to the New Testament with, and it's not clear that it helps more than it hurts. And so in this last chapter, you're saying, well, you know, what if the texts actually make more sense sticking closer to what it actually says, which is that Jesus is a man empowered by God? Right. Yeah, I think that the argument of this penultimate chapter, chapter six in my book, it's the longest chapter in the book, but it cannot be approached, you know, in abstraction from the rest of the book. In order for it to really hit, you have to see how many countless theoretical and intellectual problems there are with sort of the formal Catholic dogma, right? So once you've put aside the Bible and you've fast forwarded a few hundred years into church history, the final Catholic dogma that is now taken for granted as orthodox once you see all the theoretical problems that are afflicting that dogma, then you can return to the text with fresh eyes and you can be newly opened to an alternative reading that doesn't introduce or doesn't lead to any of those problems in the first place. Yeah, what a lot of people did, and this is what I would a younger me would have done, you think, well, there's this Trinity and Incarnation teachings, um, not quite sure what they are, but whenever I run into a contradiction in my thinking, I just have this get-out-of-jail-free card, like, I don't know, two natures, you know? I don't know, multiple persons in God, and I think it prevents you from seeing you know, what these writings actually meant. But again, your book helps people to see that, no, these are not just unproblematic, super neato solutions that everybody should just gladly appeal to and assume. Like, no, these are desperately difficult speculations all around. And the experts disagree all around on these things, which shows you right. how hard they are. So, Dr. Nemish, one standard snappy comeback that the tradition hands to people is what you call partitive exegesis. So that's a big word. How does partitive exegesis work, and how is this supposed to help with uh, reading the Bible in a small-c Catholic way? Partitive exegesis is a method for interpreting the New Testament, uh, which says that sometimes the New Testament authors speak about the one person, Jesus, in a way that strictly only applies to one or the other of his natures. And because Christ is supposed to be a person that has two natures, sometimes the authors of the New Testament talk about only one or the other. So, for example, if they say that he got hungry, they don't mean that from the point of view of his divinity he got hungry, but from the point of view of his humanity. Or if they say that he is all-powerful, 
which they don't ever say that, but just imagine that they do, mm-hmm. uh, then it would not be from the point of view of his humanity. It would rather be from the point of view of his divinity. So part of the exegesis is closely related to this idea of the communication of idioms, the communicatio idiomatum. Another way of translating that phrase would be the sharing of attributes. Basically, the idea is that because this one person has two natures, then the various attributes that are proper to that nature can be rightly attributed to the one person. Mm-hmm. So the one person, Jesus, is human and omnipotent, or is divine and mortal, or whatever. It allows you to speak in these at least apparently contradictory ways, because you have in this one person the confluence of two different ways of being, so to speak. You have divinity and humanity subsisting in a single person. So partitive exegesis is like the interpretive corollary of the ontological principle of the sharing of attributes or the communicatio idiomatum. Right. So to take an example, I was reading Athanasius recently, which I don't recommend. I don't like the man. Uh, he was he was confronted with uh, an objection by the so-called Arians, who he hated and despised. And uh, I mean, it looks like a, an obvious objection to Jesus being fully divine. You know, the passages in Matthew and Mark where he says that you know the Father knows the day and the hour of Jesus's future return, but Jesus doesn't. And Athanasius says, "No problem. You just have to understand that this is describing Jesus." relative to his human nature. Right. Why not just take it that way? This is a one way to try to get rid of the contradiction. Like, why shouldn't we avail ourselves of this reading strategy? Well, one of the problems with partitive exegesis is that, strictly speaking, it is incoherent. The New Testament regularly says that Jesus is granted various things by God, various divine qualities. For example, he says that his teaching comes from God. Mm -hmm. The New Testament says that his power to perform miracles comes from God. His authority to forgive sins comes from God. His resurrection from the dead comes from God. Mm -hmm. The fact that he is the Christ comes from God. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is anointed with the Holy Spirit and so on. The problem with that is this. If Jesus is a divine person prior to his incarnation, when he becomes incarnate, he doesn't cease being divine. He remains divine, fully divine. This is the Catholic opinion, that the incarnation does not involve Jesus's ceasing to be divine at all. He retains his divinity. He just takes on humanity in addition. Right. That's what tradition says, Chalcedon. Right. And so he remains what he was, as Gregory of Nazianzus says, uh, or Hilary of Poitiers says, that he did not cease to be God in becoming man. Now, that means that even when he is incarnate, he's still all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., And so if he already has all the divine properties, he cannot be given them because you cannot be given what you already have. Mm. But the New Testament says that Jesus was given his teaching, his authority, his power, his resurrection, and so on. So because all these things are given to him, you know, that implies that he did not already have them, but he would already have them if he were divine by nature. And so he cannot be divine by nature. The proponents of partitive exegesis try to say that actually, no, he's given all these things, but this is, again, a reference to his human nature. Mm -hmm. He's given them in his human nature and so on. The problem is that the text does not say that. There is nowhere in the New Testament where the word phusis or nature is used with connection to Jesus. Neither is there anyone in the New Testament that says that all these things happen to Jesus from the point of view of his human nature. Mm -hmm. Rather, they just say straightforwardly that he was empowered by God and authorized to do this or that. But if he were divine by nature, he already would have had the power and the authority, and so he could not be given them. 
because you can't be given what you already have and you can't be made what you already are. At the very best, you can be made more so than you already are. For example, a fat cat can be made fatter and a rich man can be made richer. But Jesus, being divine by nature, would already possess divine power and authority, etc., to the full degree. Right? He would not increase in divinity. And so this cannot be the possibility for him. Now, you can also be said to be made a certain way that you already are in another way. So, for example, you can already be powerful, but you can be made differently powerful. Let's say your right arm is very strong, and then you work out your left arm so that it becomes equally strong. Mm -hmm. So then you were, you were strong in your right hand or your right arm previously, and now you're strong also in your left arm. So you become differently powerful in comparison to before. But the text never says this. Never in the New Testament do you ever read that Jesus was made differently authoritative than he was before or differently powerful than he was before. Rather, what you read in the New Testament is that he was given power and authority, which implies that he didn't have these things already. Now, the basic assumption of Trinitarian theology and, and Christian theology in the Catholic tradition is that the New Testament's way of speaking is metaphysically informative. Okay, you can draw substantial metaphysical conclusions about what sort of a thing Jesus is from the way that the New Testament talks about him. Now, it seems to me that if you take seriously the New Testament's way of speaking, when it says that Jesus was empowered and authorized by God to do various things, then you have to conclude that he was not divine by nature. Because if he were divine by nature, he would already have power and authority, and already having power and authority, he would not be able to be given those things. So it seems to me that if you're going to think that the New Testament's way of speaking can dictate our metaphysics of Christ to any extent whatsoever, you have to say that he was not divine by nature, but rather he was made divine sort of by participation, if you want to put it that way, through the divine empowerment that God gave him when he, I'd say, uh, when he filled him with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you might think he was deified in a sense when he was raised to God's right hand. You know, you might think he would need right. a big upgrade in power and knowledge, and it says he was raised to immortality, and that's a divine type of attribute. Not essential immortality, obviously, because he died earlier, but anyway, right. immortality, that's a pretty stupendous quality to have. I think of Jesus as a deified human being. The process of deification began in his life when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was it continued in his resurrection. And I think maybe in his resurrection, it's sort of like a perfection of the process. Yeah, and when you say deified, you're following earlier Christian tradition. I mean, you're not talking about the same sort of deity or divinity exactly that, that the one God has. That's the sort of thing no, that doesn't come in degrees and you can't be given it just by definition. Right. Nor could there be more than one by definition, but it's a being made more godlike in certain ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, so part of exegesis isn't something that's in the text. It's something purely external that we have to come and bring with us to try to bring this into play. And one thing that's a dead giveaway to me is that the New Testament in many different ways implies that Jesus has certain limits and sometimes just portrays him that way. Like, who touched me? Like, he doesn't know who touched him, right? Or right. uh, he's hungry and tired and so on. Or he's worried and he's praying to help himself deal with the worry. He doesn't know the day or the hour. At no time does the author jump in and say, now don't think he's not God or don't think he's not divine because these limits only have to do with his human nature. If the deity of Christ were something that they were keen on teaching us, 
then they would be nervous lest we think that somehow he's less than divine, right? Because divinity entails that you can't be tired, that you can't be hungry, that you can't be worried, that you can't be limited in knowledge, that you can't be limited in power, that you can't be tempted. And here he is doing all these things. Right. But they're just not worried at all. (laughs) But that's because they think he's a man, which is what they say. Yeah, I think it's clear that when Jesus is spoken of in divine ways, almost every time there's like a clear explanation or qualification made to the effect that he was granted this by God. Or even Jesus himself will say, all things have been given to me by my Father. Yeah. But there are no apologies for the typically human things that Jesus does. There's no explanation whatsoever when he does those things. It's just sort of stated as if it were normal, which, like you say, is indicative of the fact that they considered him a man. Yeah. I mean, Trinitarians nowadays sometimes will slip up and say that he's not human or not a man. And then there's, of course, that tradition that says he's man, but not a man. So that, you know, you can say man of him, that's predicable of him because of his mysterious union with this, quote, complete human nature. But they don't want him to be a human person because if there's a human person in Christ, there's already this divine eternal son And then you'd have two persons and not one, which is obviously one too many. In fact, I think there's a kind of trilemma that we could come in with here, Dr. Nemish. You're pointing out that it's just an obvious bunch of New Testament claims that God is empowering and authorizing Jesus in various ways, such as to forgive sins or to be the judge of humanity. And we can ask, who is it exactly that gets empowered to do these typically divine things? And it looks like there's only going to be three options given traditional Catholic theorizing. One would be this composite Christ, this guy who's mentioned at Chalcedon, this one person that has two natures. Okay, but how is he going to be empowered or authorized when he already has a divine nature? And it looks like divine nature should include these rights and these powers with it, right? Right. So he's not empowerable. You can't make Warren Buffett rich given how much money he already has. And this guy, you can't give him divine privileges when he already has divine nature, which brings with it necessarily divine privileges. Okay, so what if you say it's the divine nature? I mean, this is supposed to be the, on many theories, this is the one self there. Well, again, he's fully divine, so he's already got all the divine rights and powers that full divinity entails. So it can't be him. Now, what if it's the human nature? And this seems to be what some people are thinking, right? But consider the right to forgive sins. If it's the human nature that is empowered to forgive sins, the human nature has to be a self. But then you've got this desperate problem that you already have at least one other self, this eternal divine son, the divine nature. And maybe there's also this composite Christ who's now come into existence in the first century. This is, this looks terrible. Uh, yeah. You don't want to have to have the human nature be a man or a human person, because that's just obviously too many Jesuses. Okay, but that's all our options. So how is this going to make sense that God, as it says, is giving divine privileges and powers to somebody here? You raise a good point. One line of uh, response that is explored by some of the patristic authors, I think it's Gregory of Nazianzus, basically he says that this empowering and all the rest of this takes place at the moment of the incarnation. So it's through the assumption of the human nature that the divine nature you know, confers all these powers and authority on it. 
But this is to make all this happen basically when Jesus is conceived rather than at his baptism. You know, the human nature is empowered because it's connected to the divine nature in a sense. But the problem then is that this never happens at any moment in time. It's just always true of him. And strictly speaking, that's not the way that the New Testament presents things. Uh, Peter, for example, in Acts chapter 10 says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen at his incarnation. It happens, you know, at his baptism by John. So this is a way of like avoiding the problem by running away from the actual language of the text itself. You know, you turn the anointing or the empowering into the mere fact of the incarnation when the New Testament presents the anointing and the empowering as taking place within Christ's life at a certain moment in time. Yeah, I mean, his ministry kicked off at a certain time. And I mean, it's hard to think that there's this nursing baby, you know, with the power to forgive sins and do miracles. I mean, could you give the power to forgive sins to a baby? <laughs> well, strictly I, speaking, it's not, even, it's not even the baby. It's that a person who has the power to forgive sins has become a baby, which is... Okay. Again, even further from the New Testament's language, because yeah. it says God empowered Jesus. It doesn't yeah. say that Jesus, you know, showed his prior divine authority and and gave gave demonstrations of his divine nature through the fact that he forgives sins. I mentioned this point in the book. The New Testament's language has two actors. There's the divine actor God and the human actor Jesus, and the one empowers the other. Right. Whereas the two natures Christology and the proponents of this partitive exegesis are forced to say that it's not that God empowered Jesus, it's that Jesus gave demonstrations of his divinity through the things that he did, which is not a sentence you will find anywhere in the New Testament. Nobody says that in Acts, in the sermons. Right. They say that God empowered Jesus, whereas the two natures theory requires you to say that Jesus gives demonstrations of his divine power and nature through what he does, which is an entirely different way of speaking altogether. Mm -hmm. This is for me the biggest question, Dr. Nemish, in the history of Christology, Somehow, at least by the end of the 100s, people seem to assume that you could just naively detect natures by typical effects. And so they would see a miracle in the life of Jesus and go, aha, that's a typical effect of a divine nature, so therefore he has to have divine nature. This is deeply mysterious to me. Have they never heard of Moses or Elijah? Like These guys yeah. are not supposed to be divine, but God is empowering them to do these miracles. So clearly you can't jump to the conclusion that this one through whom God does this miracle is divine just because that happened. Well, this is why you have this tradition of mocking my sort of Christology, and I think yours, as a, quote, mere man view. Well, what's so mere about, you know, the unique son of God, the Messiah, who's empowered to do all these astounding things like judge humanity in the future or be the greatest revealer of God to man. Like, what's mere about a guy like this? Right. But yeah, again, they just, oh, you see this effect? Well, you can infer that. It's like whenever you hear a meow, you think, well, there's a cat here. And so then I meow and you're like, okay, Dale has a cat nature. Right, like, right, well, right. Well, no, it's not that simple. <laughs> These ideas arose because of persons who, I will say, uh, you may not endorse this uh, explanation, but I will say that these ideas arose because of persons who had a predilection for metaphysical speculating, and they sort of were constantly thinking about things in these terms, in terms of like hierarchies of nature, and then there's the divine nature, and then there's lower created natures, and everything is on the scale. Uh, and they just, that was, you know, for, you know, it's like, the, it's like the saying, if, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
Mm-hmm. It was persons with a predisposition for metaphysical speculation that read the New Testament through this lens and ended up creating this theology according to which Christ is a divine person. But read from a different point of view, or if you even just subject some of the assumptions of that metaphysical lens to critical analysis, like we've been doing, I think you find very quickly, like matters are by no means that clear. Jesus can do whatever divine effects you want. That doesn't mean that he's divine by nature. It could mean that he's divine by special empowerment. Right. And those things that would be uniquely divine, like being omnipotent or being uncreated and so on, those things are never said of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and if you think it's an infallible sign that there's a divine being here, that he's doing miracles and forgiving sins and so on, you're implying something crazy, which is that an all-knowing and all-powerful being couldn't possibly authorize and empower a human being to do these things. Really? You want to say that's impossible? Certainly there's nothing obviously contradictory about it. Yes, to put it mildly. Yeah, no, I think what you said is part of it. I also suspect that during this exact time period, late 100s, there's a bit of an arms race with some of the Gnostic speculations, right? They always have this Eon Jesus or somebody who's not a man or not a real man, or there's a man there, but they distinguish the man from the Christ. And I think the mainstreamers, like, no, we've got a a minor deity too. The mainstreamers who started off down this road used to talk about the Logos of John 1 as a second God, uh, and a God that's uh, different in number from the one true God. So I, I think, you know, you have a divine Jesus, well, so do we. It's not the one true God, mind you, but yeah, divine, not just some crummy mere man. So I think there was an element of that to it, trying to one-up the seductive, fashionable teachers that were at that time infesting the mainstream or sitting right next to it. From my own point of view, I think that the more quote-unquote Gnostic idea of distinguishing between the divine Christ and the human Jesus, using Christ not as a title for a person, but as a, a name for some kind of power, that's not far from you know what I've been talking about with God's empowerment of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Like I was saying, I was not inc- I'm not inclined to think of the Holy Spirit as a distinctly subsisting person or individual thing, but you can talk about God's activity of illumination or inspiration or authorization or empowerment or whatever upon Jesus. And you can talk about that operation of empowerment as though it were a thing. And I don't think that that's substantially different from this Gnostic idea of distinguishing between the Christ, which descends upon Jesus, and then Jesus himself. It could be just you know a preference for one or the other way of talking. What you're describing, I think, is what the dynamic monarchians thought, that the divine element in Christ is a dunamis, it's a power. Yeah. Uh, the logos is, is God's power in action, basically, in Christ, or God's wisdom in Christ. Didn't the uh, Gnostics that have a Christ in addition to a Jesus, I mean, aren't these two different selves? Doesn't the Christ fly away so he doesn't get disgraced on the cross in some of the schemes? I think for some persons it may be that way, and in other persons it's harder to interpret And even then, we have so little documents left over from these people, and most of what we know about them are just from their enemies. You know, we're not always the fairest summarizers of their opponent's work. So it could be that maybe like what they had in mind was something closer to the dynamic monarchian position, but they just had their own ways of speaking, which were then misunderstood or misrepresented by their theological enemies. I'm not an expert in these matters by any means, but this is my own suspicion 
that the Gnostic notion of distinguishing between Christ and the Jesus is not very far from a person who would say, for example, that the divine element in Jesus is the Holy Spirit acting in him. Um, maybe there could be differences, but I think that there are, there are ways of reconciling those two ways of speaking. Mm-hmm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about kenosis? Dr. Nemish, some Catholic theologians nowadays have abandoned this ancient style of argument where we conclude that Jesus has a divine nature because he produces typically divine effects. They want to say that even though the incarnate two-natured Christ is divine, he still does miracles and forgives sins, etc., as a human empowered by God's Spirit. So he has to operate in the miraculous much as Christians now have to. Some would also connect this to the idea of kenosis or emptying in Philippians 2. So they want to say that in becoming incarnate, Christ chooses to temporarily not operate through his divine nature, but only through his spirit-empowered human nature. So what about this? Is this a way of saving Catholic tradition and making it tell a coherent story about God's empowerment of Jesus? I'm not sure that it is for the following reason. According to the traditional Catholic doctrine, there is one act between the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father in the divine nature. So it's not like the Holy Spirit is a distinct actor with his own actions, and then the Son is another distinct actor with his own actions. It's rather that there is a single action, divine action, strictly speaking, of which the Son and the Holy Spirit are equally its subjects. And so to say that the divine person of the Son performs miracles through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit That is no different than saying that it's the mere fact of his incarnation that empowers him to do these things. Because the Holy Spirit does not have a distinct act of his own in addition to that of the Son. Mm. So there's only one divine action. And so whether you call it the Holy Spirit's empowerment or the Son's decision or whatever, it's, it's all the same action. Okay. And so for that reason, even if you do accept the Catholic notion of divine simplicity and the, the one shared act between the persons of the Trinity... If you do accept all that, then there is no real difference. You're just back to saying that the mere fact of the incarnation is what empowers and authorizes Jesus. Okay. Even if you don't accept simplicity, if you're still committed to the traditional speculation that members of the Trinity only have one action for any action regarding created things, basically. What's the Latin slogan? Opera Trinitatis ad extra indivisa sunt. The operations or the works of the Trinity to the outside are undivided. Yeah. So if, even if you just have that, it looks like the scheme doesn't make sense. Of course, I mean, I, I wonder why they're even committed to that. You know, Jesus says on the cross, he cries out to his father, like, surely that's not the father crying out to himself and the Holy Spirit also crying out to the father. Some Trinitarians are willing to abandon that part of tradition as well. But I think they still face your objection that divinity necessarily implies these privileges, so then how can you get them? 
Right. And uh, how could divinity not imply those things? And we could also add the point that kenosis or emptying, this is really against the tradition in a couple of different ways. One way is divine immutability. You can't have there be any actual objective change in this eternal divine son, in incarnation, a change such as setting aside the operation of your divine powers or whatever, right. or of certain privileges. And also the tradition, and I think this is pointed out by Dr. Timothy Paul in his first book on incarnation. Chalcedon also insists that neither of the natures is changed at all by this union. Right. And so, I mean, whatever is implied by divine nature before should be whatever is implied by divine nature after. That's also true of the accounts which comes right after Chalcedon. It says clearly that the union of the two natures don't change either, right? Each remains what it was independently of the, of the union. Yeah. Or what it would be independently of the union. There are reasons why this kenosis branch of speculation didn't really start until the 1800s people first had to forget about some things. <laughs> well, you, you have to forget about divine simplicity because you have to now make a distinction between the person and his nature. Yeah. And somehow the person is supposed to have a center of operation, uh, you know, that's independent of his nature that can somehow neutralize it. So then he really has two natures. There's the neutralized nature and the neutralizing nature. And then he picks up a third nature when he decides to become a human being which you know it's it it just overcomplicates things you have the single agent who in virtue of some power that he has neutralizes one of his natures which implies that he has another nature that is not neutralized by which he does the neutralizing and then he assumes a human nature and then he waits around in his human nature for somebody else to empower it doesn't make any sense yeah well there are a lot of things like that unfortunately in this realm one thing I really loved about this sixth chapter in your book is you do go through briefly and address a lot of people's favorite passages where they just say, obviously, obviously Christ is fully divine here. Like, how can anybody possibly read anything else there? And, you know, among supposedly deeply educated scholars, there's a lot of narrow-mindedness, specifically in the uh, early high Christology type camp. And today's evangelicalism, where they're just like, oh, everybody, you know, everybody thinks that Jesus is fully divine in Philippians too. So you do give your own different readings of famous passages such as Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, John 1. Mm -hmm. and But I'm afraid we'll have to refer listeners to your book for all those um, fascinating details. But I thought we could take the time to go through one text, which people think is really a slam dunk uh, in proving that if not that Jesus is fully divine, well, at least that he existed before his human career, which is something right. that would be required for being fully divine, even if it's not sufficient for being fully divine. So why don't you read us that text and then talk us through how you understand it? Sure. Uh, in John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says this, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, what's interesting about this text is that if you read John's gospel as implying that Jesus pre-exists his human life, then you have Jesus asserting that he has already, to this point, ascended into heaven mm -hmm. from whence he came. The logical structure of Jesus's language implies that he has done both of these things, right? Mm -hmm. So when you say no one has done X except the one who did Y, 
that implies logically that one and the same person did both X and Y. So Jesus' statement implies that he, the Son of Man, both ascended into heaven and descended from heaven. Mm -hmm. But if you're reading John's Gospel on the assumption that he pre-exists his human life, then this is like the ascension happens too early, right? Because when did he ascend to heaven by this point? Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of commentators don't even mention this point at all. They don't seem to realize that there's a problem here. Other commentators see that there's a problem, but they they just do not consider that the ascent of Jesus could mean anything other than his ascension after his resurrection from the dead. Um, and so, and they're convinced of the idea that he pre-exists his human life, and so they're just left with nothing to say about what this ascension could possibly mean. Some commentators say that the ascension that Jesus is referring to here is actually his something that happens later in the text. For example, his ascension into heaven, or his uh, one one author says that it's his being uh, lifted up onto the cross. But this is problematic. Uh, I think that if you look at the context, you can see that the temporality of Jesus's discourse is on the same path as the gospel as a whole. Because in the next verse, Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So Jesus talks about his being lifted up, namely this reference to his crucifixion, as something that is still to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. So he cannot jump back and forth between talking about his crucifixion as though it already happened and talking about his crucifixion as though it's not going to happen yet. So the question then re returns once more, what is this ascent that Jesus says that he's undergone at this point in the narrative? How can he have ascended and descended from heaven? And obviously the order has to be ascent and then descent, because if he first descended and then ascended, he would still be in heaven, he wouldn't be here. So how can he have ascended into heaven and then descended into he from heaven by this point in John's gospel? Mm -hmm. And I think that the explanation is that Jesus is referring to his experience at his baptism. At his baptism, he was praying and the heavens opened up before him and he heard God speaking to him and telling him that you are my son. And then after that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he went into the desert and he was tempted there for a while and then he went back into the public life and he began to preach his gospel. I think just like Paul, for example, in Second Corinthians, will call a revelatory experience that he has a matter of being lifted up into heaven, even though he doesn't know whether he went there in body or not. Mm -hmm. uh, he calls it being raised up into heaven. I think for Jesus too, his ascent into heaven is this experience that he had at his baptism. When the heavens were opened up to him and God spoke to him and said, you are my son. I think this also is what is referred to in Daniel chapter 7 when the Son of Man comes on the cloud and is brought before the Ancient of Days and he's given authority and power and all the rest. I think Jesus understood his experience at his baptism through the lens of Daniel chapter 7. He understood himself to have been taken up to heaven somehow in this experience and then brought back down onto earth. Obviously not literally in body, but somehow psychologically this made sense for him as a description of what happened to him. He was brought up to heaven because God spoke to him directly. Mm -hmm. and things were revealed to him that he didn't know otherwise or that perhaps people couldn't know otherwise. So that's his ascent into heaven. And then his descent from heaven is just his return into the ordinary consciousness of life after that fact. And so when Jesus here says to Nicodemus that he, the son of man, has both ascended into heaven and descended therefrom, he's referring to the experience of his baptism, which was a kind of a revelatory experience that involved the direct experience of God. He was told something by God and this he described as his being ascended into heaven and descending therefrom. Now, if you accept this explanation, then 
a lot of Jesus's language about being sent from heaven or sent from God and so on and so forth becomes really easy to understand. And it does not at all imply his pre-existence. His being sent from heaven is his receiving a commission during his experience somehow when he was told that he's God's son. Because this opens up everything for him. Suddenly he knows that he is God's son. He is the Messiah. He has the authority to enact God's will on the earth as he sees fit. Um, as some uh, Michael Golder, I think it was, says, Jesus saw himself as God's vicegerent, and so he could do whatever he wanted. And so it was at that moment that his baptism, when he was told that he is God's son, that he understood himself to have been called to go forth into the world and to claim the rightful position that he has and to make use of his power you know, in the appropriate way. Now, what's notable is that after the baptism, he goes into the desert and the devil tempts him. If you really are God's son, do this and that. But Jesus resists all those temptations. Now, each of those temptations involved Jesus is using his power in a way that would benefit him personally. Mm -hmm. He's hungry, so he makes some food. You know, he is bored, and so he throws himself off the temple to see the angels catch him or something. But Jesus rejects that. Jesus does not use his authority and his power as God's son for his own benefit, but only for the benefit of others. And so this is what I think Paul refers to in Second Corinthians, when he says that Christ, though he was rich, yet he made himself poor for your sake. He was rich in the sense that he was God's son, and he had God's power and authority at his disposal to use however he wanted. But he made himself poor because he did not use his power and authority for his own benefit. He's like somebody who only ever used his money for other people. So he's poor because he doesn't use his money for his own benefit, but he's rich because he has lots of money to use for the benefit of others. That's how I think Jesus is understood in the New Testament. He was God's son. That means, like Psalm 2 says, that he could just ask something from God and God would give it to him. And even Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew says, don't you think I could ask for 10,000 legions of angels to be sent from my father? But he doesn't do it, right? He doesn't make use of his authority for his own benefit. And so this is the way that he understands his calling, his message, his mission from God to go into the world and to be the son of God for the sake of others and not for his own sake. And so this is also how I understand his talking about himself coming down from heaven or being sent from heaven. Mm -hmm. It's this experience of his baptism when he was when the heavens were opened up to him and God spoke to him and he gave him his calling and that's his being sent from heaven into the world. Yeah, I mean all of that's plausible and just as an added bonus, I mean according to you and I agree, this idea that Jesus has all these divine privileges as God's son that he declines to use for himself. I think this is the key to really unlocking the true meaning of the famous passage in Philippians 2, which explicitly says that it's about Jesus, which is the name right. of a man. doesn't say it's about this eternal divine person deciding whether or not to become incarnate. Can't we make sense of that as about being in the career of Jesus, the man? And the answer is yes, we can. That, I think, is the key idea. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. When it says that, you know, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think what it's referring to there is Jesus's condition after his baptism. He was in the form of God in the sense that he had God's power at his disposal and God was working miracles through him. And he mm -hmm. had, you know, as God's son, he had every right to ask for whatever he wanted from God and he would get it. Yeah, it's a kind of, quote, equality with God. It's a very right. unusual way to put it, but it seems to be used parallel with form of God. Yeah, kind of a functional equality with God. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly from another person's point of view, he would look like a God or he would look like God in the sense that he's, you know, God's power is running through him. Mm -hmm. 
but he decides to humble himself and he takes on the form of a man. Now, what's interesting is that I argue in my book and I provide evidence for this. The word anthropos in Greek can mean man in the sense of a human being, but it can also mean a mere man when it's used in comparison with somebody, something else. Mm -hmm. uh, an example would include Psalm 82, right? I've said you are gods, yet you will die like men, right? There, it's not that they are gods, but they're going to die like biological human beings. It's the fact that they are human beings. They're called gods because of their exalted position, but they're going to die like mere men, right? Like just an ordinary man, rather than as a this, this special category that they are. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another example where Paul says in Galatians, he says, for I did not learn my gospel from a man, but from Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I mm -hmm. don't think he means to deny that Jesus is a human being. I think rather he's using the word man to mean mere man. Right. So when the word anthropos is used by way of comparison with something greater than human beings, it doesn't mean a human being. It means a mere man, right? just an ordinary Joe Schmo. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that this is what happens with Jesus, especially at his betrayal when there's nobody around him and he's standing trial alone and nobody's defending him. There he looks like a mere man. He no longer has the form of a god. There he looks like a mere man and nobody is protecting him. There are no miracles performed. Nothing is happening in his favor. And so I think it's especially perhaps the, the judgment scene and the crucifixion scene where though he was in the form of a God, he gave that up and assumed the form and likeness of a mere man. Mm -hmm. um, and then God highly exalted him after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's not an eternal divine person we're talking about because he dies. Right. <laughs> which is something an eternal divine person can't do, but a man can, namely the man just named at the start of the passage. Yeah. This is one that, mainstreamers are way overconfident about, in my opinion. This is not an unheard of interpretation. There are some interpreters who are Catholic uh, in various ways who, well, look, it says it's about Jesus, so can we make sense of it as all being about the, the human career of Jesus? And it looks like we can. Right. Just are we willing <laughs> to, yeah. to consider another angle? The ability and the will are two different things. Yeah, my experience is that what people do is we're very proud of our take on these passages that admittedly many times are difficult passages. And we just read it and we say, look, this is consistent with my spin on it. Well, maybe it is, okay, but it still could be better explained and also consistent with another take on it. So we have to be willing to set down our favorite explanation sometimes and take up another one, and then really hold them side by side. Theological education does not necessarily teach people how to do this, unfortunately. Yeah, something has to happen to you, and you have to come to realize that the things that you are constantly concerned with are interpretable, and it's possible to see them in different ways, under different lights, to appreciate how they could mean different things. And only once you put a distance between your own way of thinking and the thing itself that you can approach these matters with greater neutrality and, you know, consider alternative readings and see whether or not one might not be better. Other people, however, just use this as an excuse for putting their own readings on the table, right? So they think, well, the text, you know, the text doesn't mean anything apart from a certain lens of interpretation. And so therefore I can just take whatever interpretation I want and make it make the text fit with it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's true either because it's true that generally, right, you have to interpret things in order to understand them and you have to think about things first and then have an intelligible experience of them. But there are also ways in which things push back against our interpretations. 
really, I think that understanding or knowledge is this negotiating process between ourselves and the things that we're trying to know. We think about them in a certain way and we try to see whether we can make sense of them that way. And sometimes the thing pushes back and it doesn't allow us to make sense of it in that way. And so we have to adjust mm -hmm. our theories and we're going back and forth. You cannot just take whatever theory you want and make the whole Bible submit to it. Like, for example, one of the texts that people commonly point to to prove that Jesus preexisted his human life is in the high priestly prayer where he says, glorify me now with the glory that I once had in your very presence yep. or in your presence. They think like, okay, well, look, this clearly teaches that Jesus once preexisted. But think, I mean, if you, if you let the text say what it says, what does it demand of your metaphysics of Christ, right? He's asking now to have a glory that he had at one point. Now, mm -hmm. did he lose that glory in the meantime? Mm -hmm. Because why would he ask for it if he already had it? If he did lose it, that means that he ceased to be God in becoming incarnate, or that his incarnation somehow diminished or affected his divinity, right? And that's not the Catholic idea. He's supposed to remain perfectly divine even upon becoming man, right? He doesn't cease to be God in becoming a human and becoming human. Mm -hmm. And so this text, if it does prove that Jesus preexisted his human life, it proves that he preexisted in a way that contradicts Catholic theology because it implies that he lost the glory that was proper to him in his previous state, which is exactly what Catholic theology says cannot have happened. Yep. To my mind, it makes more sense to understand Jesus to be speaking in the way that, like, for example, Abraham is called the father of many nations, even though he hasn't given birth to any child yet, or he hasn't had a child yet. Or Jesus is said to have been slayed from the foundation of the world, even though that really only happened many thousand, many billions of years later. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Christians are said to have been chosen from the foundation of the earth, even though they didn't exist yet. Things that are predestined are spoken of as though they were already real. You know, just like, for example, if one football team scores a touchdown, they go ahead, you know, by 12 points, and there's only 40 points left in the game, the other team can't win. And so we say that this team won the game, right? They sealed the game. The, the game is theirs. Well, actually, the game is not over yet, but it's, for all intents and purposes, impossible for the other team to win. And so we speak about them as though their victory has already happened, even though it hasn't happened yet. Jesus himself does this in the high priestly prayer. He says, I have completed the work which you've given me, even though he only says it's all finished on the cross. He still hasn't died yet. So he talks about his work as though it's finished, even though it isn't really finished until he dies on the cross. And he does that because he thinks that it's guaranteed to be done, right? So whatever is guaranteed, whatever is predestined, whatever is taken for granted, you can talk about it as being real, even though it isn't real yet. Or you might say to somebody in a chess game, I beat you, right? Even though you don't have him in checkmate yet, you will for sure. And then you can say, I beat you even before, strictly speaking, he's in checkmate. That's what I think is happening with this text. When he talks about him having glory in his presence before the foundation of the earth, he doesn't mean actually having glory. He means that he was a glory that he was predestined to have, right? The glory that he had by way of predestination, he now wants it actually. And so that way, you don't have Jesus losing a glory and becoming incarnate. You have him gaining a glory that was previously predestined, but later become a reality. Yeah, and I think that's a nice example of how we can disentangle ourselves from Catholic traditional misreadings of scripture, right? We don't just come up with something that would exonerate our theory or our theological commitments. We find something in the text itself that points in a different direction than the traditional interpretation. And then we right. explore that. My experience is that young Theo bros and apologetics fanboys and so on, they're really addicted to this cheap sort of, why can't you just let it say what it obviously says kind of objection? Well, 
what Dr. Nemish was doing was not desperately trying to find a way around what it really obviously says. There's nothing obvious about it for the reasons stated. And you can look in the same chapter and find this motivation to take it a different way. So why isn't that a better reading? That's how this always goes when you're decatholicizing your interpretations. I mean, there's a name for this, historical grammatical interpretation. This is the whole trend of modern era Bible interpretation. You know, what did they actually mean by that when they wrote it? That's all this is. Right, I agree. I don't know how you do it, Dale, but I can say for my part that ever since I've abandoned the traditional understandings of the doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation, um, I've sort of lost all patience for having theological discussion with people. I think on these topics especially, it's just impossible to have a rational discussion with most people. So I wrote the book and I published it, and whoever wants to read it can read it, but I am not you know, eager to continue talking about these things with very many people because I think most people just, you know, you can't, you can't reason with them. They, you know, they, they can only see things their way, and they're yeah. disproportionately confident in their own point of view. Well, you know, a lot of that confidence comes from just simply never having heard the other side. So right. uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. You'll run into people that have read your book in the coming years and they'll say, oh, thank you, Dr. Nemish. That was very helpful to me as I was trying to, you know, decide whether I was a Trinitarian or not, basically. All I can say is I once was one of those apologetics fanboys and would have been super obnoxious uh, conversing with somebody like you. <laughs> Oh, I would have but, <laughs> been too, because I was like that. I was like that also. But I, you know, I like to think that I've grown out of it. See, there is hope. Then there, there is yeah. hope. It's not immediate, though. It's not. It's not a fun process to just sit there and get abused. I can tell you. But right. um, yeah, concern for truth makes you do a lot of weird things. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dr. Nemish, thanks so much for talking with us. And uh, again, the book is called Trinity and Incarnation, a Post-Catholic Theology. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. This week's thinking music has been the track Blood Instrumental by Anthem of Rain. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. love the trinity's podcast please share this episode on social media like twitter or facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the itunes store for your country you can also support the trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode if you're interested in that please visit patreon.com trinities finally let us know what you think Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.